Well, what's up, Salt Company? How are we doing tonight? Wow. Okay, it's 8.30. I get that. Guys, you got to help me out because with this, like, the masks on, I can't tell if you're delighted in this or not. Like, you got to give me eye squints and really let me know that you're, like, super, thank you, the head nod, like you're super into this. But also, like, when you get a chance to yell, you got to let me know. So, how are we doing tonight? All right? Okay, good. Good. That's just a warm-up. There's more of that coming here. Uh, it's great to be with you. As Stephen said, my name is Cody Klein. I'm one of the pastors here at Kendale Church. And I want to start tonight, before we dive into the text, I just want to celebrate a couple of things real quick, because I can, I can do that. They give me a mic, and I can, I can celebrate things in front of people. But guys, first off, one of the things that I say all the time is that I'm a, I'm, I am the product of two things, the grace of God and the people who have poured into me friends who have poured into me. And guys, one of the things I absolutely love when I think about Salt Company is I love the staff team that pours into you. How do you feel about that staff team? You like that? See, that was, I was like I told you it was a warm-up earlier. Like that was, dude, that was, anyway. Uh, but I, guys, I love, I love this team. Uh, Steven, Laura, the whole crew, um, I'm just so grateful. And even, even one of the things I'm delighting in tonight that Laura's not here because she's, she's putting into practice pure religion, caring for orphans. And uh, I, I just, I love the heart of this team. And, and guys, you should hear them talk about you and the way that they brag about you. And this week, Owen gave his life to Christ. His name is up on our whiteboard in our staff office, just walking by constantly just praying for Owen. And thanking God for his connection group leaders, of Eli and Luke and for KJ and his boldness. And just, I love that. We just sort of love celebrating you, and I love the team that leads here. Uh, second thing I get to celebrate is this T-shirt. Uh, not, not the shirt, but what it represents. I put this on, it was like a happy day the moment I put this shirt on, because it just reminded me, this past weekend was in Cincinnati. Guys, we are planting a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Is that nuts? And, uh, and spent this past weekend with Ernie and Timmy and their wives, just delighting in not just a cool city. Like, it, it doesn't take a lot to impress me. I'm small town, like, farm Iowa boy. Like, I think every city's kind of cool and has these, like, cool moments. But, but not only just delighting in a cool city, but just reflecting back on interactions I had with real people that call Cincinnati home. I think of Landis. I think of Dennis. I think of Nico. People who don't have a church home, that was able to engage just in, in spiritual conversations and just could sense as I'm interacting with them, like, God, you are preparing the soil of this place for a new gospel work in this city. And I'm just so excited uh, for our team to get there. And I'm excited for some of you to join them. And here's my just quick encouragement, like shameless plug. Because I think one of the greatest things you can learn to do in college and then like take this for the rest of your life is how to put your yes on the table before the Lord before he even asks anything of you. Just go like, God, whatever it is, whatever you call me to, whatever you ask of me, my yes is already there. Here I am, send me. Just a, a posture where your hands are open to the Lord. And so I'd encourage you. In October, there's vision trips. And in November, there's gonna be a vision trip. In December, there's gonna be a vision trip. Jump on one of those. Just, just have your hands open. And say, God, send me. And he may not send you to Cincinnati. I'm not even like just arguing for that simply, but, but maybe God will send you there or he might send you to your hometown or someplace you've never even thought of. But let God decide what's gonna happen with your life. Don't close doors unless he closes them. But hold your hands open and put your yes on the table. You won't regret it. 
And so I'm just, I'm excited about those two things. I just want to celebrate. So man, thank you for letting me teach tonight, Stephen. And uh, go Bearcats. I got to figure out what noise they make. It's, YouTube it. it. There's like weird videos out there of like what Bearcats actually sound like. It just sounds like a screaming child. Anyway, I'll leave that alone. It's better than your laugh, the turkey call. So I'll give it that. Like, <laughs> all right. So tonight though, uh, tonight we're going to talk about Jesus. And this question that we've been asking this fall is, who is Jesus? And I want to take that, that question from, like, like from the screen behind me and personalize it a bit. Because I'm not asking, what do your friends say about Jesus? What do your parents say about Jesus? I want to know, who do you say that Jesus is? Like, I'm asking you, if I could get you just one-on-one, who would you say that Jesus is? And we get to know who Jesus is through the Bible. So that's why here at the Salt Company we teach through the Bible. And so tonight, if you have a Bible, we're going to try to answer this question. Just, just another story to help us understand who Jesus is. We're going to go to Luke chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 40. So if you have a Bible, you have a phone. If not, it'll also be on the screens behind me. As we dive into this, this text, if you're taking notes, if I had to like take everything I'm about to say tonight and like give it a theme and like put it into one word, summarize everything I'm about to say into one word, the word would be this, desperation. Because what we find in Luke 8, verse 40 through 56, is two desperate people who have run out of options. Running out of options, running out of time, and they encounter Jesus. And it makes me want to ask this question of you tonight. What are you desperate for? And then whatever you put in there, will it satisfy you? I use that word desperate purposefully because you might go, man, man desperate, that's a pretty strong word. But I'd say no, but it's the right word because everybody in here is desperate for something and your life is oriented around it. Either you're desperate for friends or approval or affirmation or success and stability or a, a purpose. But everybody in here is, is desperate for something. And what you do is because of that desperation that is in you, you find yourself running toward a variety of different solutions, toward a boyfriend or a girlfriend or to a group of friends or to parties or into your grades and into classes, or making money, or getting that job or that career, or moving to this place and having that job title, or having this cause to orient life around. We chase these things that offer themselves as solutions, but they always overpromise and underdeliver. If whatever the solution is is not named Jesus, it'll always overpromise and underdeliver. What are you desperate for? And will what you're chasing after satisfy you? As I read this text, I couldn't help but think about the night that I met Ryan Johnson. Now, before I tell you about the night that I met Ryan Johnson, I want to tell you about just my favorite Ryan Johnson story so you can understand what this dude is like. So, uh, 
I met Ryan Johnson when I was a sophomore at Iowa State. That's where I went to school. And uh, Ryan was this really interesting dude. This is my favorite story about Ryan. Uh, he called me one day because he was bored. Like he was driving, he was bored. Do you have friends like that? So he was driving from Des Moines to Ames, which is only a 30-minute drive. But of course, Ryan being kind of the guy that he was, like he was bored. So he just calls me. We're about five minutes into this aimless conversation about nothing just because Ryan's bored. And all of a sudden I hear him go, oop, and then I'm like, hello, hello. Now it's weird because the call didn't drop. I'm like, it's not like static. Like it's, it's just a different sound. But I, I, I sat there for like 30 seconds. And then, you, you know, what would you do? You hang up. I hang up and I'm like, I don't know if Ryan's like dead I don't know if that was like a circular saw in the background and he like walked into it. You know, like, I don't know what the noise is. 10 minutes later, he calls me up and I'm like, what happened? He goes, dude, he's one of those guys, right? Dude, I was talking to you on my phone and I dropped it and my car is so rusted out, it fell through the floorboard and onto the interstate. So the noise that I was hearing was like cars whizzing by as it's sliding like on the concrete and off the side of the road. And he went back and got it, which I can't even imagine what that scene was like as Ryan's like trying to get out of his car and like dodge vehicles to grab his cell phone. Uh, but I was, it's just like that, that gives you a little picture of, of who I'm talking about here. That, that's my favorite Ryan Johnson story. But the night that I met Ryan Johnson, I'll never forget. I like ice cream, obviously. Um, and, and the best place, the closest place to my dorm was a Dairy Queen up on the top of Welch Avenue. Now, if you guys don't know Ames or what Welch Avenue is, Welch Avenue is like um, the hill for Cedar Falls. It's where all the bars are at, where all the college students go. So it's a Friday night. I've got a hankering for ice cream. I gather up my buddies. It's about 9.30, and we head up to the Dairy Queen on the top of Welch Avenue, and we're walking by all these places. Bars are packed out. It's a classic Friday night in a college town. And as I'm eating my cookie dough blizzard, right, because is there any other blizzard out there? Don't give me pumpkin spice and all that, whatever that jazz is. I know. It's, I got my cookie dough blizzard, and I'm just looking at the scene, and in the middle of all the chaos, I see one guy sitting on a bench all by himself, skateboard flipped over on his lap, and he's just running his hand across the back wheels, just kind of staring off at nothing, which is kind of odd, right? Like, that's what caught my attention. I'm like, this is kind of odd. Like, who goes out on a Friday night and just sits in the middle of Welch Avenue with a skateboard and just watches people? So I decided I'm going to go over and talk to this guy. So I, I Slide on over, and it's like, hey, you mind if I sit here? He said, yeah, no problem. Introduced myself. He introduced himself. And I said, you, you doing okay? And he goes, yeah, uh, kind of. He goes, today's my 21st birthday. He goes, and so last night, I was at that bar and waited till exactly midnight. And when the clock struck midnight, I drank all the alcohol I could get my hands on and just went wild with my buddies. At some point in the night, passed out, somebody got me home, and I woke up this morning in my bed, massive headache, and now I'm sitting up here, and I'm asking myself, like, what's next? I mean, like, is this what, like, life is all about now, where, like, each night you just go out and you try to, like, outdo the night before? Like, and then he turns to me, and he 
stuck between the sentence, and he just looks at me and goes, I mean, there's got to be more to life than this, right? Now, guys, I came to know Christ as a 16-year-old, and somebody taught me this at about that age, and so this seems a bit childish, like, forgive me. But one of the things I was taught early on was that I should tell other people about Jesus. But it's a nerve-wracking thing to talk to people about God sometimes. You're like, I don't know how to get into this conversation, whatever. And so somebody taught me at that point, you should pray what they would call the chicken prayer, which the chicken prayer is just like, God, I'm terrified. So if you could just give me an opportunity, but you've got to like set it up on a tee. Like it's got to fall on my lap. Like the, the situation has to be absolutely obvious that that's like, this is when you tell somebody about Jesus. Because if there was ever an answered chicken prayer, that was it, right? He looks at me, there's gotta be more to life than this, right? And that night, praying then that the Spirit would give me just the words to say, was able to share Jesus with Ryan, invited him to the salt company, and within that month, Ryan gave his life to Christ and was baptized. But when I met Ryan that night, he was desperate. And he had had everything that the world had offered him and was empty. And I would ask it, are you desperate like that tonight? Because if you are, take courage, because you're not the first person who's ever come to Jesus desperate and with needs. And we're going to see two of them tonight. I want you just to see what their encounter with Jesus is like and how he interacts with desperate people. So if you got your Bible, Luke 8, verse 40, says this. When Jesus returned, the crowds welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. And just then, a man named Jairus came. He was a leader of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and pleaded with him to come to his house because he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. While he was going, the crowds were nearly crushing him. A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years who had spent all that she had on doctors and yet could not be healed by any. So here we have two desperate people. The first person that we're introduced to is a man named Jairus, who's known as the leader of the synagogue. He was likely a Pharisee, which means of like all the people in his world that he would interact with, he was like the spiritual elite. And because of that, he was a leader, an influencer. He was well known. In the social ladder, he was at the top, the absolute top of the social spectrum. But his only daughter, who's 12 years old, is dying. I had to pause for just a bit and just like settle into that part of the story and just feel it. Because I've got one daughter. She's beautiful, isn't she? We call her Boo Cakes. Her name is Bailey. She's four. But I don't know when the last time is I've, I've like said Bailey to her. I, I just call her Boo Cakes. She's my Boo Cakes. Every night at the dinner table, we will always go around the table and ask, what was your favorite part of the day? And every night without fail, her answer is seeing you. 
I know, right? Like that little girl's got me wrapped around her finger. I mean, it's just crazy. And I had to insert myself into this and go, what would I do if my daughter was dying? Yeah, maybe I'm the, the person that's got answers every other day, and I'm the leader, I'm the influence, I'm the whatever. But Jairus, he, he in this moment, he is on his knees pleading with Jesus, please come to my house because my little girl is dying. That's the first desperate person. Second desperate person that we're introduced to is a woman who is unnamed. And she's been bleeding for 12 years. Catch that. The same amount of time that Jairus has been delighting in his little girl, she's been suffering. And the suffering that she's experiencing is not a physical suffering. The, the bleeding that she had, it wasn't so much the pain of, of, of the, the physical nature of that illness that would be painful. It's the stigma that comes with it. It's the, the societal shunning that comes with her bleeding. Because of her condition, she would be labeled by those around her as unclean. What she would be told is do not touch anyone. And what others would be told about her is don't touch her. In fact, Jairus, who's the leader of the synagogue, she was told, you can't go in there. And for 12 years, she's had to endure not only the pain of the bleeding, but the shunning of everybody that she knows. She had to be isolated and alone for 12 years. And she... Because of all of that, you got Jairus on one side, is at the top of the social ladder. She's on the complete opposite side. And she spent all that she's had on doctors. And they haven't been able to help her at all, which was probably humbling for Luke to write, because Luke, who's writing this gospel account, is a doctor. And she spent all that she had on doctors, none of them could help. In fact, Mark records in his gospel when he lays out the same story, actually adds the additional phrase. In fact, they only made things worse. So here we have two people. Both are desperate. Both have no options at this point. They're running out of options. And they've come to Jesus for help. Here's what happens. Jesus is on the way to Jairus' house. The crowds are crushing in on him. This woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, this is like the worst situation for her, right? She's not supposed to touch anybody. She's not supposed to touch them. They're not supposed to touch her, but she wants to touch Jesus. And she's got this mind that if I could just reach out, if I could just somehow slide through the legs here, if I could just get to the edge of his robe. And she reaches out, verse 44, approached from behind and touches the end of his robe, and instantly, instantly her bleeding stopped. Right? She tried everything else. Nothing else worked. Instantly her bleeding stops just for touching the robe of Jesus. That's wild. In verse 50, who touched me? Said Jesus. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. I love Peter. He's always that guy. 
Like he, he hears Jesus' question of like, who touched me? And he's sitting there probably looking to his right and left at the other disciples like, are you going to tell him or should I? Like, everybody's touching you. Like the crowds are everywhere. And Jesus says, no, like someone did touch me. I know that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him. And in the presence of all people, she declared the reason that she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. I imagine this was a terrifying 20 seconds for this woman. Probably felt like 20 hours. Because you know that Jesus is God at this moment. Because no one else has been able to heal you. Who, who can heal like this? No one else has been able to heal you. You just touched the edge of his robe and you were healed. Clearly, this is God in the flesh. But you got this haunting question of like, but what is God like? Does God delight in showing mercy? Or is he a reluctant giver? Is God looking at her like a burden? Like, fine, I just wish you had asked. What's he like? Is he compassionate? Is he kind? Is he excited for her? But he's not mad. Jesus isn't mad here. Everything that Jesus does here is intentional. Because you've got a woman here that for the past 12 years has been forced to the edges of society. And she has tried to stay out of the public eye for 12 years. And Jesus is using this moment, capitalizing on her bravery, to pull her out of the shadows and into center stage, putting the spotlight right on her that everybody can see and everybody's going to be able to hear what he says to her. All eyes are on her, on this woman, that everybody knows her story now. He did that purposefully so they could experience and see what was going to happen. Because as she gives public confession that I was bleeding for 12 years and no one could heal me and I touched his robe and he healed me. He would look back. He would match her public confession with public celebration. Daughter, your faith has healed you. It saved you. Go in peace. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. If you've got a Bible, circle that word daughter for a second. And I want you to circle that word because if you read all of Luke, and if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, and you read the same story that Matthew tells, you'll see the word daughter. But if you read all of Matthew, if you go into Mark and you read the same stories, he tells this story and you circle the word daughter and then you read all of the gospel of Mark, you will realize that this is the only time Jesus ever looked at a person and used this word, daughter. It's very purposeful. In fact, I have to wonder if the reason that he's using the word daughter is to remind us, remember how this story began? about a heartbroken father, love 
the love of a father causing him to run, to fall at his feet, pleading, come to my house, my daughter is dying, to remind us of a father whose daughter was dying and the love of a father for a daughter. I think there's purpose here when he drops that word, daughter. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And she leaves completely restored. The one who created her, who brought her into existence, delighting in a daughter, fully restored. But this is where things get really nutty is verse 49. So while he was still speaking, someone came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. This is where this story goes from desperation to hopelessness. I, 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 I don't know, like, if you've ever had that movement in your life before where you went from a place where you were desperate to, like, hopeless. Like, it's too late. In fact, I, I even begin to wonder, like, if bitterness began to grow in Jairus' heart because he's putting it together. Jesus, if, if you wouldn't have had this like lengthy conversation, if you wouldn't have like stopped, I mean, even on top of it, maybe like it became like a clash of classes here, right? I'm the spiritual elite. I'm the one that's close to God. You should give me first access to you. But instead you pulled over for this unclean woman, underprivileged, what does she deserve? Like that would start to build up. Then it would begin to hit him. If you had moved faster, if, you ever heard of triage, Jesus? My daughter died because of you. Like all of this starting to just bubble up in it. And before he can even get a word out, these tender words come from Jesus' mouth to him. Don't be afraid. Only believe. And she will be saved. Jesus has limitless capacity. He's not, he's not bound by the circumstances here. He can take care of both of their needs. And so after he came to the house, he let no one enter with him except for Peter and John and James and the child's father and mother. And everyone was crying and mourning for her. But he said, stop crying because she's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him because they knew she was dead. And so he took her by the hand and called out, child, get up. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And then he gave orders that she'd be given something to eat, and her parents were astounded, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Salt Company, <laughs> this is Jesus. If you want to know who he is, this is Jesus. You look at Jesus, one of the things this passage tells us is if you've ever feared that maybe you are a burden to God. That Jesus being the busiest person in the entire universe doesn't have time for you. Understand this. This is what this passage is saying. Jesus has time for you. You're not a burden to him. If you come into this passage and you begin wondering, am I too far gone? Am I too broken? Is it too late for me? Guys, this passage is meant to show you he healed a woman that no doctor could heal. Only Jesus could do that. 
raising somebody from the dead? Who's even heard of that before? But only Jesus can do that. It's meant to cause us to look at this and go, geez, if he can raise a girl from the dead, if he can heal a woman that no doctor could ever heal, what can Jesus not do? But let me ask you that question. Like, sincerely think about this. If Jesus could do those things, name one thing that Jesus can't do. Name one thing he can't do. Because the reality is, everybody who comes in here tonight is desperate for something. And every solution that you're trying to fix that void that exists within you is failing you, and you know it. Augustine said this, one of my favorite quotes. He said, God has made us for himself. And because of that, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God. All of these desperations that exist within you were meant, like these situations, to draw you to Jesus there are no other options for you. There's nothing else to the right or to the left. All these other solutions will fail you. What you need is Jesus. And whether you know it or not, your greatest need, the thing that you're ultimately desperate for, that all of these hungers and everything else in life stem from, goes back to a desperation for you to be reconciled with God, the one who created you. And if you want to talk about miracles, I'll talk about something greater than healing a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. I'll talk about something greater than watching somebody who's dead come back to physical life. Let me talk about the greatest miracle of all. That you could be spiritually dead, eternally dead, and given eternal life. That you could walk into this room tonight alienated and an enemy of God and could walk out with him calling you daughter. That he can take your temporary happiness and all the things that you chase that are never satisfying you, he can take that away and he can give you eternal joy. You want to talk about miracles? That's a miracle. And Jesus offers it to us all. But we have to follow the pattern of the story from tonight because we have desperate people who recognize they have no other options, who come humbly before Jesus and receive what they long for by faith. Didn't do anything, just trusted that Jesus could do it. Do you sense in yourself a desperation a restlessness within your heart that's a constant reminder that you are not right with the creator of the universe. If that's you, you can be reconciled right now as I'm speaking to you by simply saying, Jesus, I trust you. And Salt Company, if you've experienced that compassion, if you have experienced the boundless power of Jesus, the boundless compassion of Jesus, then let me put this vision before you. There are other Ryan Johnsons on the hill tonight. They got different names, 
and they might not drop their cell phones through their floorboard of their car. They might not be that cool. But there are people that you know and many that you don't that you need to pray the chicken prayer and tell them about Jesus. That's why we're salt company. We're meant to go out into the world to scatter across it and make a difference. Take what you know of Jesus. Add words to this. And tell the world about him. Who do you say that he is? And what we know from tonight, he is compassionate, he is powerful, and he will save you and heal you by faith. Let's pray. Jesus, we all collectively, and some in this room, maybe for the first time, we recognize our desperation. And God, we like, imagine it like, like we're, we're on our knees, we're, we're leaning toward you, trying to work through the crowd, trying to just touch the, the edge of your robe that, God, we could just get like, just, just, just a little of you, Jesus, that would make all the difference for us. God, we approach you in humility, total brokenness, having tried everything else and coming up empty. And Jesus, we come to you now in faith. I recognize that I'm desperate, not for the things that I think I'm desperate for, I'm desperate for you. And that Jesus, if I get you, that you'll change everything for me. And so Jesus, you are our hope, you're our joy. You're the thing that we proclaim, you're the person that we talk to people about, you're on the tip of our tongues. You're lifted up by our voices and our songs. And you're worshiped by our lives. God, send us out as your people. We love you. Amen.